1990, a man named Charles Freeman was running a record shop in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, EC Records. We'd make mixtapes, you know, for the teenagers and 60 Minutes cassettes were famous then. This is Charles. So we would make the cassette. Then we had other jam tapes, like there was a group called Jam Pony Express. Jam Pony Style. Slick We sold their tapes. Big Ace, he's deceased, was a friend of mine. He used to bring me tapes from their crew, and I would sell them in the record shop. How important was the record store to the community back in the day? The younger kids hung out, so they would come in and, and jive talk and sit around for a minute or entertain me with what they know as far as music goes. And, uh, you know, you play records, we had speakers outside, two turntables in the back, two turntables in the front. So it was, it was live and uh, busy. But of all the dope Miami acts out at the time, a lot of people were coming to Charles' store in search of one group in particular, Two Live Crew. Now put it in the ball! This is Two Live Crew's song, Put Her in the Buck, the kind of track that Freeman liked. That good boom and that Miami sound, that boom box, that boom, boom, the throbbing. Hey, that's, you can't really understand the music because it's just, because uh, that, that throbbing, the boom is just killing everything. And, and, and got the speakers with that. And you can hear it two blocks away. Only one way to have a good time. Fuck that pussy and make it mine. Lay a bitch on the bed flat on her back. Hold the legs up high, make the pussy splack. You can put it in the I think it was, uh, it was, I wouldn't say get over it. It was our style of music that we can go to the club and we could dance and we could rap to it also. And so it was it was not only a rap song, but it was dance music that, you know, it was that deep bass that we were after also when we were in the club. Freeman loved Two Live Crew, and so did his customers. So even when Broward County, Florida deemed their latest album as nasty as they want to be obscene, they didn't stop Freeman from peddling the music. Whatever they said, I wasn't going to do. If they make it, if they ship it to me, I'm going to sell it. Why did you keep selling it? Was it, do you feel like you were taking a stand? Was it, um, what was your motive? It was definitely freedom of speech for me. Why would they ship it or make it and then stop it? To him, selling the album was a risk worth taking, even if the people closest to him thought otherwise. He was going to be arrested. That's Charles' wife, Annette Freeman. Mm-hmm. So he left that morning. I said, whatever you do, don't sell it. Don't sell it. Don't sell it. And did he listen? No. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. He sold it. He sold it. <laughs> Naturally, his wife's warning was correct. One day when Charles was at his register, taking care of business, a guy walked up to him asking to buy a copy of Two Live Crews as nasty as they want to be. He had a beard like me, older guy, probably in his 40s or 50s. He came in, made the purchase, and I'm thinking nothing of it. 
Charles sold him a copy of the album. But then the guy turned around, gave a signal, and within seconds, a group of officers burst into Charles' shop. The customer was an undercover. And they came directly at me, so I, you know, you don't have time to do anything, but they came with their guns out. They rushed me at the counter. They frisked him down, pulled his hands behind his back, and cuffed him in his own store. I'm thinking, wow, really, 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 for a record? You arrested me for a record? Yeah, Mr. Freeman, we're taking you in for a record. So I was, I was completely shocked. So they had me sitting right there at my counter, waiting for Nick Navarro to show up. Acting on tips from officers, local TV crews were in Freeman's shop when an undercover policeman bought the album. Sheriff Nick Navarro himself was on the scene taking questions about his successful bust. This was a, a, a challenge to the law, and we don't accept challenges to the law. This is a country of laws. As the officers confiscated Charles' stock of Two Live Crew's album, news cameras and reporters circled around him to capture the arrest for all to see. And Charles couldn't understand why of all the records in his shop, why this one would land him in handcuffs. I got two albums over there, three albums over there. That's obscene because they're just as dirty and nasty as two live crew. And this is stupid. When Luke and the crew got wind of Freeman's arrest right there in Broward County, their lawyer, Bruce Rogo, offered to represent him. Now, I didn't know how famous and good a lawyer he was. And I'm like, wow. And all I can say is I got Abe Lincoln. I got the best. Because I always recall when I first saw him, he looks like Abraham Lincoln. And so that was my thing. I got Abe representing me. I'm good. Charles was now facing trial, and he had some company. He was picked up the same week that the two live crew was arrested for their performance at Club Futura. You heard that infamous performance in the last episode. The crew on stage chanting, Buck, Navarro, Buck, fuck, Navarro, to an audience of screaming fans, only to be met outside the venue by the Broward County Sheriff's Department. Now the crew was facing criminal charges. They'd have to stand trial. And if they lost... They could go to jail. But for Luke Campbell, it was about much more than that. It was about all the artists that would come after him. It became a bigger issue to me. I was like, look, if I don't fight, then nobody else will be able to do records like this. You won't be able to have a, you know, a Lil Wayne. You won't be able to have a Drake saying what he says on the record. You won't be able to have a, you know, um, any of the artists that you have, Kodak Black, Trick Daddy, or none of them guys you know, who use explicit lyrics on their records, you wouldn't be able to have that because it would be a precedent and it would be a law, it would be case law that was on the books that would prevent those records from happening. So imagine a world where the most explicit songs your favorite rappers have ever made don't exist. A world where Kai never turns necks and backs into a celebration of oral sex. A world where there isn't a whisper song quiet enough to save the Yang Yang twins from cops like Sheriff Navarro. A world where obscenity laws put a stop to juvenile in one of the most iconic twerk anthems of the 21st century. Luke knew he had to fight, not just for the crew and people like Charles Freeman, but potentially for the future of freedom of speech, for the future of hip hop. I'm Brandon Jenkins, and this is Mogul.
Most people facing jail time tend to stay quiet leading up to their court date. That's not Luke's style. He decided to start arguing his case in another court first, the court of public opinion. So in the months leading up to the trial, Luke and his lawyers made the rounds on the talk show circuit, going head-to-head with their detractors on Geraldo at large, debating their stance on ABC's Nightline, and making a case for their music on MTV's This Week in Rock. But things really got heated when they faced off with their biggest critics on another very popular show. The Phil Donahue Show. Uh, Phil was a very handsome, charismatic MC. That's Alan Jacoby, one of Luke's lawyers who joined him on stage at the Donahue Show. Uh, he had a show wildly popular uh, that just kind of got to the point before Springer, because he didn't. He had a lot more taste, but he still went on a ledge a little bit. Jacoby sat next to Luke on stage. Before the show starts, the two men share a small laugh with each other, like they were excited to be on TV. The camera zooms in on Luke's smiling face. He's wearing a dark blue suit jacket over a white tee, a fresh Caesar cut, his waves on swim. A slight gold chain with a cross pendant hanging around his neck. He's well put together, and he's composed. Donahue walks behind Luke and starts introducing him. This is a multi-millionaire, and he's going to jail. These guys have been on everything. I mean, maybe even to nightline, dayline, yesterday afternoon, tomorrow morning, Geraldo, and here they are. The, here's, the, here's the moment of their careers on the Donahue show. <laughs> and what's dirty to you? That was the question at hand. What's dirty anyway? What's obscene? And a panel of people had been assembled on stage to debate it. Some of them were like Luke, artists who'd been taken to court or had their music challenged for one reason or another. And the others, the people sitting towards the end of the stage, the people they'd be debating, were these guys. Okay, here we go. Bob DeMoss and Jack Thompson. Boy, aren't you uh, in the center of America's drama, which even Time chose to feature on its cover. Phil, then why are we over here? Are you, uh, why are you over here? Because this is, uh, we want you closest to the host, because that's, that's the power position. Uh, you heard Bob DeMoss and Jack Thompson in the last episode. Bob transcribed the lyrics from Two Live Crew's album, and Jack sent them to the local sheriff's department, which set this whole thing into motion. And there they were, all of them, assembled on stage next to each other, like a panel of misfit toys. By the First Amendment, you want to make your point, Mr. DeMoss? This country is in the business of drawing lines. First Amendment rights, and unfortunately we need a little crash course here, 14 forms of speech are not protected by the First Amendment. You can't slander, libel, false advertise, or create something that is obscene because it affects the public's interest to preserve itself. As DeMoss is talking, the camera cuts back to Luke. The smile he had during the show's opening has vanished. Now he's staring at DeMoss with one eyebrow raised, a stern look cemented on his face. It's like he wants to say something. But DeMoss? DeMoss isn't really the one he's after. Jack Thompson, please. There are 600 sexual references, there are descriptions and glorifications of the brutalization of women sexually. I'm an attorney who represents women and children who have been sexually abused. And you find out very quickly if you do this work, Luther, the causal nexus between what you do 
and the mental molestation of children and the physical molestation of women. We don't talk about, we don't talk about fact, women, yeah. man. We don't talk about no women. Oh, we don't, really? We don't talk about uh, uh, harassing and sexually brutally brutalizing women in my music, man. How about You're the, out of your mind. You, hey, we don't do that in my music, man. I'm tired of you saying that, Yeah, too. how about the gang rape on the album? What gang rape? What, you quoted. You read it. You, you listened to it. Well, Mr. Mr. Thompson yeah. has a right to make yeah. his point. Okay, Sir, yeah, go ahead. But, but, but the thing is, is, is Mr. Thompson is me. He's leading these people. All right, you'll have a chance Mr. to straight. Mr. don't even have an office. All I right. mean, he's a crazy man. <laughs> Luke says, Mr. Thompson is misleading these people, and Mr. Thompson don't even have an office. He blurts this out, and the audience laughs. But you can tell he's angry. He's visibly upset. Of all the members of Two Live Crew, Luke was the most offended by the conservative critics. That's because for Luke, this wasn't just about obscenity. It was about racism. And Donahue didn't shy away from that topic. Numbers of people of color are upset with what's happening, regardless of what happens to be the ethnicity Phil. of the artist. Please Phil. let me make this point. Okay, I got a response. You, uh, we have to at least be allowed to wonder whether racism is at work here. Okay. And people who are uh, people who are uh, enjoying the kind of uh, music and the lyrics and the uh, idiom that's being used by rap groups want to know about the loftiness of white guys coming over the mountain to presume to save them from this okay. evil force when where were you when the ghettos were falling down? Where well, were you when okay. their fathers couldn't get a job okay, because Phil, they were black? I got your point. Can I respond? Certainly. Back in the 60s, I was elected student mayor of my all-white city, and I stood up at the all-white city council Very meeting good. that night, and I said, folks, we got to desegregate this city because it's illegal to keep blacks out, and that was the first time my life was very threatened. Good. So don't tell me I'm a racist. In the years since this episode was taped, Jack Thompson and Bob DeMoss have had time to develop their defense against claims of racism. And when I sat down recently with DeMoss and asked him about it, he was ready. He's like, why are you singling me out? I'm a, you know, I'm a black man. You know, it's just our black experience. And I'm just speaking about where it is with the peeps and all that. And uh, I have a quote here where Dr. Benjamin Hooks at the time was, I, I think he was the uh, director or the president of the N, uh, NAACP, you know, he said in a press release in June of 1990, he said, quote, our cultural experience does not include debasing our women, the glorification of violence, the promotion of deviant sexual behavior, or the tearing into shreds our cherished mores and standards of behavior, end quote. For the record, the NAACP ended up defending the two live crew's right to free speech. But DeMoss is correct. At the time, the organization's director did issue his own statement, criticizing the crew's lyrics for the way they portrayed black people. So it wasn't just some white guy, Bob, from a conservative organization coming out and saying, this is past the line. Dr. Benjamin Hooks is from the NAACP saying, no, 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 you don't speak for all of us. This is not how we want to treat our women. So... Don't try to play a game and act like you're a free speech a vigilante, you're some kind of hero and all this stuff. Is that no, 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 no. You created something that was lyrically on par with hardcore audio pornography. That is what you have created, and you should own it, bro, right? That's what you should do. Don't like play footsies with it and act like it was no big thing. It was something very serious. Back at the Donahue show, Donahue threw a video up on the screen for everyone to watch. Let me ask you 
ask Mr. Thompson how he feels about this video. Thank Roll you. the tape. Take a look at this, Mr. Thompson. Okay, let me put my... Plan. How do you feel about this? But you made me feel. Yeah, you made me Appearing on the screens of the Donahue Show is one of the biggest, if not the biggest pop star of the 90s. Madonna. Performing her hit song, Like a Virgin. A mic in one hand, Madonna moves slowly, centrally, even seductively as she slides her hands from the front of her thighs up to her breasts, leaning back as if laying down in bed. Her legs twist open and close in a can opener motion. She gets on her knees and thrusts her hips to the beat. Her male backup dancers crest cones on their chest that are made to look like erect nipples. They sway their bodies in choreography to Madonna, singing about the pleasures of sex. Uh, that's uh, Madonna in concert, the Blonde Ambition uh, uh, tour. You, you say this is not... A that's not the point. What's on trial here is supposedly well, the we, First we, Amendment. You, please forgive us for being curious about how you feel about that. Uh, I think that parents had better find out what Madonna's pumping to the brains of their children. And well, but is she subject to arrest? I mean, here's the I'm point. I'm not the one that makes how that determination. DeMoss doesn't make any clear distinction between Madonna and Two Live Crew. Why one is more criminal than the other. But then Jack Thompson chimes in. Bill, there's not one album that anyone else, in my opinion, in the history of the world has ever done that's, that's dirtier than two live crew. That's exactly and, right. And we'll be back in just and a you moment. You haven't heard much. When we come back, dancing cops, rapping prosecutors, and the two live crew gets compared to Shakespeare? After Donahue came back from break, Jack and Bob had more to say. One of their main concerns about Two Live Crew's explicit music was that it would end up in the hands of impressionable children and would have a lasting negative effect on them. Women in the audience also shared this concern about the Two Live Crew. If you're 18 years old, it's different, but I have nieces and nephews who are 10, 11, and 12 years old, and they're listening to it. Now, if one 13 or 14-year-old or 15, I don't know how old you have to be to buy it, they get it. They have a bunch of other little kids who listen to well, it, and they're listening to it. They'll get Budweiser, too. They'll get Budweiser. So now what? Now what? That's why I put it a lot better. That's why I put a sticker, Luke shouts out, referring to a gold sticker he made for his albums, a label to warn retailers and customers that the album's content was explicit. In Luke's eyes, the sticker gave parents more information to help monitor what their kids were listening to. In other words, it was now their responsibility, not his. If you don't tell your kid about sex, your, your daughters are going to be pregnant. It's up to you. It's up to the parents. Sure if you is. don't educate your daughter, like yes, a lot of people is. haven't educated their children, that's why we have a big teenage. The show continued like this. People with firmly held beliefs shouting over each other, Donahue playing ringmaster, and Luke attempting to defend his stance. But as Luke tried to yell louder, answer more questions from more people, it became increasingly obvious that this was a lost cause. People that didn't like his music weren't going to change their minds about it. Well, I don't even consider this art. I mean, he, he's rapping, not singing, number one. Um, well, but that's your opinion. Uh, yeah, well, it's rap. Isn't it called rap? But and since it's art, it's a brand song. new kind of music. Yeah. And it's for... Yeah. Yes, yes. Why is America so scared to establish boundaries of decency? Look at Manhattan Cable. 
1-800-INCEST, for God's sake. You what the no- hell is this coming to? You're worried about this. No, I'm infuriated. Yeah. yeah. The heated debate continued until the credits finally rolled. After the show, DeMoss is making his way out of the studio. As he stepped into the elevator, he says he was met face-to-face with Luke. He'd finally gotten his chance to confront him one-on-one. After the Phil Donahue show, he and I were riding down the elevator together, just the two of us, and he's like, well, Bob, I just sold another 100,000 albums after that. And um, I said, you know, I'm just... I'm curious, you have a seven-year-old daughter. Uh, wh- what would you feel if if she were to be sexually abused by a 13-year-old who got the idea from your album? You could hear crickets. As Luke left the Donahue show that day, he may have realized that the real trial ahead of him was going to be much harder than he thought. And it wasn't just because his trial date was getting closer. All over the country, battles over obscenity were breaking out. A museum in Cincinnati was charged with obscenity for displaying pictures taken by the controversial photographer, Robert Maplethorpe. In Alabama, prosecutors indicted a company for broadcasting porn into their airwaves. And ads for an X-rated film were pulled for being too explicit. What was American culture going through at this time? Part of that fear and panic of the late 80s, early 90s had to do with baby boomers just losing their control over the culture. That's John Leland. Back in the 90s, he was a music journalist covering hip-hop and the 2 Live crew. And Leland says that baby boomers, the generation of Americans who came up during the birth of rock and roll and witnessed the civil rights movement, that generation was older now. They'd grown up, bought houses, had kids. They were less radical and prone to finger-wagging. And now, artists like 2 Live Crew were receiving tons of pushback from boomers. But Leland says that if you look back at the history of American music, boomers weren't that different. In fact, sex was in the very DNA of the music they grew up with. Well, well, think about this. The word jazz refers to a sex act, right? The word rock and roll refers to the sex act. We've always had these sort of Dirty blues songs like 10-inch record by Bull Moose Jackson. Uh, the 10-inch record was a metaphor for a 10-inch piece of anatomy. I cover her with kisses when we're in a lover's clinch. And when she gets all excited, she begs for my big 10-inch record of the band that plays the blues. That was in the 50s. Then came James Brown's Sex Machine, Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On. By the time we arrive in the 80s, one musician would take it a step further. Prince. He was one of the sexiest performers we'd ever seen, right? He had a song called Head that was very explicitly about what it was about. Acts like Bull Moose, James Brown, Prince, even Madonna face varying degrees of controversy and pushback for their music, but never to the point of facing jail time. So Luke was left wondering, what was so different when it came to the two live crew? Why was a small Miami rap act such a huge target? They were just a lot more profane. You know, they were really specific. They weren't talking about a big 10-inch record. They were talking about a big 10-inch penis. I mean, that was just 
you were just like, wow. I haven't heard that before. Two Live Crew had pushed the envelope, crossed over an invisible line that maybe other artists weren't willing to encroach on. America's pop culture was changing, and the people who didn't like it were lashing out. There were protests. I heard the album, I was, and I went inside and I, I cried. What makes you cry about it? The fact that they say that. About what? Women? About women. And, really? And just the fact that they say it. And there were counter protests. In America, should be freedom of speech. But then at the same time, they say, watch what you say. We have drug problems tearing the whole world apart, family life. But why they ain't concerned on this? We got all of these police sitting around here waiting for something to happen. Why they can't go out there when they see what's happening every day, not a one-time event? The parents are always saying they don't need their kids to listen to it. Don't buy. Well, don't buy. Don't buy. Now, that's just the bottom line, not the top, not the middle, but the bottom line. Don't Listen to it. Sex is something to be enjoyed in a good Christian marriage. That's what we have. You should go to jail? Uh, yes, sure do. One week before the case went to trial, there was a sign that the legal system had already decided where they stood on Two Live Cruise music. Charles Freeman, the record store owner arrested for selling Two Live Cruise as nasty as they want to be, lost his case. And it happened in the same court Luke was set to stand trial. Freeman was convicted and now was facing up to a year in jail. Luke began to realize that he too could be going down. At this point, he had a family, a home. People depended on him. Everything he'd worked for hung in the balance. Luke started to panic. I, I grew up with nothing. You know, I got two sitting over my lunch money. And I, you know, I had thoughts that, yeah, it's, it could go bad real fast. When you come from nothing, you're constantly in fear of being stripped back to nothing, or worse. But despite this fear, Luke saw a greater value in his fight. And if jail was the cost, fuck it. He was ready to pay the toll. I will be going to jail for something. You know, I mean, there was a lot of great people that went to jail before me, whether it was Martin Luther King, uh, H. Rap Brown, uh, Malcolm X, you know, that's, that's when it became a bigger issue for me. You know, it became where the black people can, you know, say shit they want to say on the record. On the first day of the trial, it was a warm 89 degrees in Miami. Palm trees swayed gently outside the courthouse as reporters and news cameras gathered to watch what promised to be an entertaining trial. When Luke arrived, he was ready to take care of business. Here's John Leland again. The first time I went to the courthouse was the first time I laid eyes on Luther Campbell. And he was standing on the veranda outside. He was talking on this cell phone of the time that was like the size of a brick. And he was in this beautiful olive suit, and he must be 6'3 or so tall, lean guy with great posture in this beautiful suit. And it, you just thought, that is, you know, that's a guy who knows what his business is about. The last time Two Live Crew's music was on trial, it was up to a judge to make the decision. But this was a criminal trial, and the crew's fate would be in the hands of a jury. So Luke really wanted to be sure that he could get Black people on that jury. Speaking to a local paper, he explained, 
We're trying to find some people who can relate, not just some whites who live in upper-class Fort Lauderdale, eating caviar. We want some people who eat ham hocks and collard greens. But in the end, only one of the jurors is black. And this jury's job was to decide if the crew's performance at Club Futura passed the Miller test. You heard about that in the last episode. The Miller test says for the crew's performance to be deemed obscene, prosecutors had to prove that it offended the neighborhood, lacked cultural value, and it made people horny. Here's Luke's lawyer, Jacoby, again. Nothing about Do Life Crow turns anybody on. <laughs> it's a joke. And, and, and that's one of the three litmus tests for obscenity. Um, that's what a, porno, a pornographic movie or pornographic pictures is supposed to do. The task at hand for the prosecution was simple. Convince the jury that the crew's music didn't pass the Miller test. To start off, they told the jury, you're going to hear graphic descriptions of sexual intercourse, anal intercourse, and oral intercourse, adding that they would get a full picture of the two live crew's simulation of deviant sexual acts. But when it came time for the prosecution to present their damning evidence to the jury, there was a huge problem. After the break, the prosecution's case to convict the two live crew starts to go off the rails. What you're hearing is what was supposed to be the prosecution's main evidence against the two live crew. Actual recordings of their performance at Club Futura. But when those recordings were played in the courtroom, there was a huge problem. My producer, Mac, asked Alan Jacoby about that. Could you, could you kind of describe for us what these tapes sounded like in court? <laughs> Terrible. I mean, you could not, I don't, I don't think I ever made out more than one or two words, and generally they weren't dirty words yeah. that you made out, you know. But what I did is I watched the jury, and the jury was like, they were pissed off. At the prosecutors, they were going like, why are we listening to this crap? How long did you guys sit there and listen to it? I, as long as they played it. It's their case. So How we just it feel like? Days. The lead prosecutor was Pedro DeJoles, a young black man. He says the problem with the recordings of two live crews' performance started at Club Futura with the sheriff's office. Broward Sheriff's Office, okay? So Broward Sheriff's Office, they had their detectives go in to record the performance. They went in there with handheld tape decks. You know, back in the day, we didn't have digital. And they had a little tape deck, and they actually went in there and put it against a giant speaker. Can you, you, I cannot describe the distortion. That's all you heard. That's all you heard. So that was our evidence. The prosecution's key piece of evidence had been sabotaged by the very thing that made this music so popular in Miami, the bass. The bass had distorted the recording, and without a clear version of the recording, the prosecution was left with one more option. They sent officers up to the stand to recite the lyrics themselves in front of the entire courthouse. All we had was inspector, you know, who so-and-so with the tape deck up there and describing the performance on stage. A young lady got on stage and removed her panties and then she simulated a oral sex thing. This went on for eight hours. Distorted tapes blaring out of the courtroom speakers 
and officers of the law reciting sex lyrics. According to one journalist who was reporting on the trial, at one point, the prosecution tried something else. They asked one of the cops to get up in front of the entire courtroom and dance, like the women at the Two Live Crew concert. The whole thing became a spectacle, to the point that the jury just couldn't take it anymore. The jurors have an unusual request. They want to know if they're allowed to laugh. And Judge, that's the response of this performance. You know, I don't think they want to tackle or laugh the entire time, but apparently some of them are having some physical pain in, in Everyone on Luke's side of the courtroom lights up with joy. Fresh Kid Ice starts chuckling quietly in his chair. Brother Marquis smiles and glances over at Luke. Luke knocks back his head and enjoys a big laugh to himself, as if to say, See? I told you so. Even Jacoby and Rogo get in on the fun. We th- all thought it was funny. The whole, the, the only people who were serious in that room were the two prosecutors. Even the judge, you got the feeling that even the judge had a smirk <laughs> on her face that she thought this was nonsense. At this point, is it like, okay, we're really going to sit back. Like, this is a done deal. Like, how does that moment change things for you guys? I think that until you win, you fight. Mm. You know, until it's over, it ain't over. And so I think even though we felt good, every day I would go home, I said, okay, this, is, this went really well. Until the jury comes back, you really can't, you can't assume anything because juries will surprise you every time. By making the jury laugh, the prosecutors had dealt another major blow to their case. They promised a vivid depiction of obscenity, but ended up doing what amounted to a comedy routine. Nobody in that courtroom was aroused. It seemed like the crew passed the first part of the Miller test. So, Jacoby and Rogo moved on. Maybe the crew's music wasn't pornographic, but was it art? Did it have any serious literary, artistic, or scientific value? To help make this case, they called on a heavy hitter to testify, a well-known black intellectual whose star was on the rise. Henry Louis Gates. At the time, he was between professorships at Ivy League universities, and his expertise was in African-American studies. Here's John Leland again. He was asked to name his credentials. You know, he had come from Princeton, and I think he was at Duke at the time, or maybe he was at Duke, and he was on his way to Harvard. And there were people in the audience that hadn't seen anyone like Henry Louis Gates before. Uh, and I don't think this happened literally, but it was as if people were high-fiving each other in the, in the courtroom. They probably weren't. But there was just this look that, oh yeah, this guy's on our side. Once Gates took the stand, he started making his best case for Two Live Crew. He compared Two Live Crew to Shakespeare, Chaucer, Baldwin. There's certainly a bawdy tradition in Shakespeare. There's a bawdy tradition in Chaucer and a bawdy tradition in, in Baldwin. Gates said the group would, quote, taken the image of black men as oversexed, hypersexed in an unhealthy way and blown them up. 
to the point where you just have to bust out laughing. In other words, the stereotype of black men as sex-crazed, a stereotype that historically has gotten black men killed, was now being used to get laughs. To Gates, Two Live Crew's music was a practice in black survival, and he said as much in an op-ed that year, arguing that the lewd lyrics, their use of profanity, it was all part of an African-American tradition called playing the dozens. In modern terms, we call this roasting, frying, cooking, or joning. Remember how big your mama jokes were back in the day? Gates argued that these seemingly hurtful or disrespectful jokes are actually a way for African-Americans to combat racism. He says, quote, In the face of racist stereotypes about black sexuality, you can do one of two things. You can disavow them, or you can explode them with exaggeration. Here's Bruce Rogo again. He took two live crew and put them in the context of a much larger picture, a cultural picture from slavery, from, as I said before, from call and response, from the kind of patter that would go on in a culture that had been separated from the rest of the, the world, the white world. He created a picture of, of two live crew being part of a continuum of African-Americans surviving and creating uh, in their own culture. And then this slips over into the, a culture that wasn't quite ready for it, uh, that hadn't heard this before. Is it possible that they weren't participating in any of that? Is it possible that they were just cracking middle school jokes? They were certainly cracking middle school jokes, but those middle school jokes come out of someplace. You know, they could be, uh, have arisen, you talk about the tradition of the dozens. The dozens doesn't arrive from the academy. The dozens arrives from, from people cracking. You know, the, the Yamama jokes, they come, they have a tradition in them and they can participate in this tradition without being able to name the tradition. The trial went on for two weeks. And in between laughter and lyrical analysis, Luke needed a bathroom break. And while he was in the bathroom, he ran into Pedro de Joles, the black prosecutor on the case. Luke suspected de Joles was only assigned to this trial because he was black. Because the prosecution's argument would sound way less racist coming out of the mouth of a young black man. This bathroom break is recounted in Luke's book. He writes, I actually ran into de Joles in the bathroom during the trial. And he said to me, man, I like your music. We was just jamming to your shit in the office the other day. I don't know what the fuck they got us doing this here trial for. This is just my job, you know? I got to do it. How do you react to that quote? I remember bumping into the bathroom. I don't remember all that. I remember, I don't think I would have said all that. I do remember saying nothing personal. This is, this is a gig. But I don't think I'd have been goofy enough to say all that. Maybe that's something he remembers in his mind. But I do remember, you know, bumping into him in the restroom and, hey, I'm sorry here, boss. I mean, you know, just doing my gig, you know? That I remember. But the rest of the stuff, um, yeah. Especially saying we were jamming to you all. We were not jamming to you. <laughs> Negro, please. On the last day of the trial, Prosecutor DeJoles prepared to give his closing statement. He steps out in front of the jury. His hair gelled perfectly into jerry curls. A black man in a black suit and red tie. And he begins. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. First off, I'd like to thank you. We want to thank you for paying such close attention to this case for as long as it's lasted. You know, we understand being a juror is not easy. It's a lot of work. 
we, we get you up, we get you down, we herd you into a room, we, you know, we, we make you work. Tijols tries for one last time to convince the jury that Two Live Crew's music is so vulgar, it deserves to be deemed obscene. So he starts quoting lyrics from the album. Head, booty, cock, there be drinking, come. Head, booty, cock, what's your sister like? Head, booty, cock, what's your mother like? How can you say it's not offensive when you hear things like, all fellows eat pussy, all niggas eat pussy? You little whore behind closed doors, you would drink my cum. Let me fill you up with something milky and white, because I'm going to slay you rough and painful, you innocent bitch. Don't be shameful. Then he takes on Gates' testimony. Mr. Gates. Mr. Gates has some nice credentials, if you will. Not bad, but he had no musical background. He's never testified as an expert before. He actually compared these gentlemen right here, these men, to Ralph Ellison or James Baldwin to the great works of these two great writers. Some of the material I just read to you. Geniuses. They were geniuses. These young men are geniuses. It's unbelievable. You know, I don't think until yesterday they knew they were geniuses. Where's the political message, you little whore, you drink my cum? Where's the political message? Where's that feeling that he talks about? Well. This is just a fight against slavery. Where's that fight against slavery when it says, let me fill you with something milky and white. I'll slay you rough and painful, you innocent bitch. I mean, where's that feeling of slavery? Despite his impassioned plea, the jury's not reacting much. DeJoles must have sensed him drifting. So, he decides to take it up a notch. He tells you that this is representative of the black culture. My God. Unbelievable. This is representative of the black culture. It's not. It's ludicrous that they can insinuate that the black community has lower moral standards. It's ludicrous. It's wrong. It's a lie. It's a bald-faced lie. If this was not obscene, what could be? Then nothing could be obscene. DeJoe's talks for over an hour. When he's done, the jury walks out into the little room where juries do what they do. In that little room, the fate of Luke Campbell and the two live crew, and ultimately, everything they were fighting for, would be decided. Once they return, the jury's decision is passed to the judge. Rogo stares forward pensively, his fingers to his mouth. Alan Jacoby appears confident, sitting upright, perfect posture. Brother Marquise and Fresh Kid Ice are slumped in their chairs, seemingly relaxed, but more than likely anxious. They've been down this road before. And then there's Luke. He hunches lower into his seat, as if bracing himself for impact. The clerk is a young black woman, and as she prepares to deliver the decision, she cracks a big smile. We, the jury, find as follows, as of the defendant, Luther Campbell, the defendant is not guilty. Luke erupts out of his seat, pumping his arms like a young Tiger Woods after a victory at the Masters. Brother Marquis throws up a fist in triumph, while their legal team exchanges congratulations. Over Luke's shoulder, you can see an applauding Charles Freeman, the record store owner, 
standing among others in the gallery. After the clerk reads the non-guilty verdicts for Brother Marquise and Fresh Kid Ice, the celebration dies down. Luke takes questions from the press. He stands tall, next to his lawyer, a boyish smile on his face. I feel great, man. You know, hey, victory. It's just great to know that the First Amendment's alive and well in America. All right, bro. Let's go to Disney World. <laughs> in Luke's eyes, they just won the Super Bowl. He and his team had fought for their right to be as nasty as they want to be, and won. And this victory wasn't just for them. Nobody else went against the record. The record was for sale all over the country. You could have had 5,000 prosecutors bringing cases, but everybody backed off. And so what it did really was kind of cement the First Amendment protection for music and art of all kinds. Some would say the motivation for the fight was purely money, and that Luke didn't care about freedom of speech. Others say it was about principle, and that Luke fashioned himself into a hip-hop civil rights pioneer. Maybe it's a mix of both. But the fact is that the future of music was forever changed when four young black dudes had the audacity to walk into a club in Florida thinking, fuck what the cops say, fuck what the courts say, and fuck what the critics say. That blatant disregard for authority is the essence of hip hop. Because once the bass starts knocking and the crowd starts screaming, the music is the only thing that matters. And if that means risking jail time or having your music banned, then so be it. After the trial, the crew may have felt more righteous about their cause than ever. They released this song, called Banned in the USA. It's that we are bonded by the First Amendment. We have the freedom of expression. We have the freedom of choice. And you, Chinese, black, green, purple, Jew, you have the right to listen to whoever you want to and even the two-live crew. Two-live crew. Two-live Did you go out and celebrate with the guys afterwards? Absolutely we did. <laughs> But that I really can't get. (laughs) That's Ira Wolf, the radio DJ from last episode. Luther had a club in Miami Beach, and we all went there to celebrate. And uh, it was a closed night. The doors were shut. So the place was half-packed with strippers and half-packed with family and friends from Two Life Crew. It was a lot of euphoria. There were a lot of people happy and, and, and drinking, dancing. There was uh, little rooms in the back. People could have sex. It was, it was insane. It was, uh, now, if you want to talk about obscene, the party was obscene. <laughs> a lot more obscene than the, than the performance was. Nothing compares to celebrating with the Two Life Crew in Miami with the Two Life Crew entourage and friends and family. Nothing compares to that. Nothing. No. No. But on the next episode of Mogul, the party draws to an end. Because behind the scenes, the two live crew were falling apart. Luke was always kind of, he was always shady to me. He was always shady. Didn't seem like a straight up dude. Can't wait for next week's episode to drop? No problem. You can now stream the entire season for free, exclusively on Spotify. 
Search for Mogul inside the Spotify app and hit the follow button. Mogul is a production of Spotify and Gimlet Media. This episode is produced by Wallace Mack and Saeed Tijan Thomas, with help from Gabby Bulgarelli. Our senior producer is Matthew Nelson. Our editors are Lynn Levy, Caitlin Kenny, and Chris Morrow. We had more help from Nico Lopez. Sound design and mixing by Haley Shaw. Music supervision by Matthew Boll and Liz Fulton. This episode was scored by Nana Quibena. Theme music and additional scoring by So Wiley. Our credits music is by Prince Paul and Don Newkirk. Fact-checking by Soraya Shockley. And follow us on Twitter for all the latest news and the behind-the-scenes look at the making of the show. Our handle is at Mogul. <laughs>